Welcome back to the program. And we're going to begin with a scripture reading and a prayer, or just a prayer. Father's like, I'm not going to scripture. I'm just going to go right to prayer. <laughs> go okay, right, Father. Go right to, right to God here. Let's go. Yes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Good and gracious God, grant we pray your Holy Spirit to descend upon us in this uh, broadcast today and in all the instances of our lives. Help us especially as we approach the end of ordinary time and the beginning of the new liturgical year at Advent to be mindful of um, always of the four last things uh, as a way of preparing ourselves to be purified and to cooperate with your grace to get ready for uh, our final aim and end, which of course is perfect communion with you in heaven for eternity. And all this we ask in your most holy name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Lewis. I appreciate that. So uh, today we're, we're talking about a theme that doesn't have a lot of good press, right? The idea of judgment, right? So the four last things, a quick summary for those who weren't listening last week, and maybe they're like, what are the four last things? Father, you want to give a, just a summary overview of the four last things? The four last things are death, judgment, heaven, and hell. I got them in the traditional order this time. That's last good. week I put Thank heaven you. last, but... Uh, yeah, so last week we talked about uh, death and aspects of that, and, and judgment is a part of that. Uh, it's going to be one of the four last things. Yeah, and so it's uh, it's important for us to reflect on these things. These aren't things that, that I think are, like, you know, this isn't like sort of table talk at dinner time. Right. You know, hey, <laughs> let's go out tonight and hang around. Uh, oh, it's actually kind of funny. Here, did I, did I mention this last week? Uh Last, oh, no, it was after our pre-record. So last Saturday night, I went out with some professors and administrators from the Oaks, mm -hmm. the classical Christian academy, where my kiddos are, are at school. And uh, they said, oh, come on out to this whiskey bar in downtown Spokane. Do you, do you know the name of this whiskey bar? Um, I, I, I knew it. Yeah, what is it? It's, it's Purgatory. Yeah. <laughs> That's now, <laughs> I thought that was so great. You can't imagine the humor that was going back and forth, right? Where the professor uh, or the faculty member who's in charge of family life, he says, oh, yeah, we're going to go out. We're going to meet this place. We're going to purgatory. <laughs> I said, yes, you are. <laughs> I said, yes, you are. And they said, yeah. And I said, who else is invited? And he said, well, Dante is invited. <laughs> And I said, well, is it okay if I bring Virgil? <laughs> right? So it was just, it was, now how many texts can you have with guys that go back and forth like that? And I said, how long do you guys expect to be in purgatory? Because if I get there late, right? And it was just, it was too easy. It was so easy to be able to just kind of razz the guys. Uh, but, you know, it's, uh, first of all, what a great name for a bar, yeah. uh, for a whiskey bar. But actually, I don't think purgatory. You're going to be drinking a lot of whiskey and hanging around, chatting, and probably having a good not. time you, in purgatory. You may not be. You may be tempted to not want to leave. <laughs> yes, and that's problematic. <laughs> yes, that would be problematic. And we might actually get to purgatory today, uh, because it's it's connected to judgment, and that judgment as we head towards heaven. Um, but um, let's start with. Last week we talked about death, and we do encourage you to check out that program. It was a really fascinating conversation, Father. Yeah. I really enjoyed it very much. Isn't that fascinating all by itself? Um, it was a fascinating conversation about death, <laughs> right? But don't we need a Catholic Christian 
revealed understanding of death, or we'll find ourselves caught up in a really kind of like broken or demonic or twisted or just false understandings of death. Right, right, exactly. You know, and you kind of a synopsis of one of the points we raised last week is uh, death, you know, in the in the view of the world, in the view of maybe we're tempted in the view of many of us even to think this is death is just final annihilation and obliteration and, and that at, at death we cease to be and then, then that's it. And and if that was what happened, if that's what if that is what death is, then then no wonder you know it'd be no wonder people would despair because I mean what's the point? What's the point of living if it all just ends? And what's the point of even trying to do good things if it doesn't even matter if we can't take it with us? But our reminder was that death is not the end; it is a change. Um, as significant and as traumatic as being pre-born and then shifting into being born and coming into this world, so I imagine death is from being pre-born, you know, in this life to being born again into into the fullness of life and its full full substance and perfection in in heaven. And uh, so death is a portal. It's a gate. It's a gateway. It's a change. Well, and and you know, we didn't get to like dive into like these little threads that now that you said this stuff, now I'm gonna go st- <laughs> keep talking about death. But linking death as sort of the front side of the reality of judgment here. Um, the uh, you mentioned that if if death is an end to everything then everything means nothing. Um, I, I don't know if you ever read, you probably didn't, Hans Kung's book, Does God Exist? I have not read it. Okay, so Hans Kung, right? So I'm not recommend. do not read Hans Kung's books, right? Don't waste your time. But he has like a 900-page book on Does God Exist? <laughs> and you figure that's just what a German theologian would be writing about, right? Now, and obviously what he's doing here, he isn't questioning God's existence. He's saying, what's the basis for God's existence? And in the end, you know what he says? At a rational level, the foundational argument for the existence of God is, since you didn't read it, you don't know, but I'll see if you're surprised at it. And he said that the rock-solid bottom, the ground that at a human level, that a human being without faith would look and say, there's a basis that you can build off of to say that God exists. It's that reality is trustworthy. Hmm. Reality is trustworthy. And that's a fascinating argument. Yeah. Right? In other words, no, everything doesn't mean nothing. Right. That the, the fact of meaning, the fact that at a like, visceral, like a very, very kind of dig down deep inside of a human being, they don't walk around with that, uh, like the guy with the hands on his face, what's that, the scream, yeah. that painting of the scream? People aren't doing that. People walk around saying, I look around and I see all of these elements in life that are true and good and beautiful. I see all these experiences that are meaningful. And I conclude at a, like a foundational level, everything must mean something. I, I can trust, I have this trust that everything means something. And so... It's in that light that I approach the idea of where did all this come from? What's the source? And then what happens? Where's it all going? What happens on the other side of death? What do you think about that? Well, it seems, um, I, I think that's true. I, I think that whole approach is, seems to be a very skeptical theology. It you know, calls to mind a Rene Descartes, you know, at the very least, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And, you know, he was famous for saying that whatever that was, you know, 400, 500 years ago. And, 
and um, and we look at that like that's very deconstru- deconstructionist. We've we've had a substantial amount of knowledge of the truth leading up to that, and that's he pairs it down to that, and I'm like yeah, methodical doubt. Yeah, methodic. That's a good right? way to put it. Methodical it, doubt. Doubt everything that can be doubted until you get to something that you can no longer doubt. Mm-hmm. So what's the foundation? And it's yeah. not like. It's the minimum knowledge, yeah. right? It's the minimum knowledge. And I think it's too bad. Like, yeah. that's where we ended up. But continue, please. But, yeah. Well, anyway, so, I mean, at least at least there's a foundation. You know, at least Hans Kuhn arrived at a foundation. You know, I, I suppose at that point, like, you know, would Rene Descartes argue with him? Like, well, the whole point of me being able to, you know, of doubting everything is I, do, can I believe my senses? Can I believe that my, whatever I am engaging with the world is that accurate and true is there even something out there how do i know that that tree is green you know what is green you know so this is the anyway they might get into a bit of a fight about that you know he's saying reality yeah, this is, is sort of the goofy arguments i've had with these <laughs> atheists who say how do you know you're not just living in a simulation right yeah you know yeah, how do yeah. you know that you're not just part of a dream of my world or, or that everything that you exist your awareness is actually of a dream state rather than a real state. Right, or Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse, which is all the rage these days, right? Okay. Yeah, I don't even know what that is, but I... I, I oh, Tom, I, you're so behind. I don't think of him as a prominent philosopher, oh. so unfortunately. Um, however, like Kung, he goes, he kind of traces all the way back, and, and I shouldn't speak, I shouldn't put too many words in his mouth, but as he scans history, he goes back to Plato, right, where... Plato, when he said, like, how do you examine life? Like, a, 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 an, un, um, an unexamined life is not worth living. So examine life, and if you examine life with your eyes wide open, he says that life is preparation for death. Hmm. I don't know if you remember that. It was uh-huh. sort of one of his principles. Life yeah. is preparation for death. And and by that, he meant this. Not like, like uh, what's it? You only live once. Live now with gusto, because yeah. in the end, diem. everything means nothing. <laughs> yeah, carpe diem and all that. No, he didn't mean that. What he meant was that in death, there's a fundamental act that is asked of you. And that act is entrustment. That in death, you um, can look at it as being a victim, a powerless victim who is going to undergo an act that is beyond your control. Or you can approach the act of dying as an act of entrustment. And it is, in fact, the full, final, complete act of entrustment that I am getting ready for. I'm, I'm getting uh, advanced experiences of every day. So every day as I enter into my today, I'm going to trust God with my day today. I'm going to trust reality is meaningful and at a deeper level that God is a good God who created this world. And you know what? I'm going to put it into his hands. I'm going to put myself into his hands. And so if we live every day like that, if we live every day with that fundamental act of faith, of complete entrustment of ourselves to God in all the circumstances and situations we're facing, then when we approach death, guess what? Finally, I get to do that act completely. What I've been doing daily in partial ways, because I can always take it back, finally I get the chance to do it completely, irrevocably, com- uh, fully. And so all of a sudden it's like, 
Death isn't this somehow the degradation and decomposition of my life down to the uh, point where my physical being has totally let me down. Mm -hmm. Well, while if that's true that that's happening, and the saints will talk about this, their spirit is coming more alive, is more purified, is able to finally, finally, finally give myself over to God. What I've been trying to do uh, partial, you know, trying to do completely my whole life, but I have to keep renewing it, renewing it. Finally, I get to do it when I die. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, and Isn't so, you cool? you will have died well, and and then that is the basis of the happy death. You know, we've prepared for this, and so you died well, and um, what greater happiness there could be this side of eternity, right? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I like that. So, all of a sudden, you say, "What is faith, hope, and love?" Right? These three theological virtues. In some ways, if you kind of like put them all together in a bow, it's trust and confidence and delight, right? Uh, faith, hope, and love. It's like, well, where do we get to do that? Well, we get to do that by going through the door of death. Mm -hmm. And we can do that at the door of death by dying well. Mm -hmm. We die as an act of faith and hope and love, trust, confidence, and delight. That you made promises to us, Jesus, and you're going to fulfill them. And I love you. And now I get to go love you perfectly. Yeah. So what a different way of looking at death. Right. I love that. So, um, So that was last week. Isn't that funny? <laughs> That's good. There's another little. There's another little review, right? <laughs> we never get to go forward on these things. Um, so, okay, but this actually has that. Like I said, two sides of a coin. Um, the act of dying puts us into contact with the moment of death, which we kind of explored a bit, right? The theology of the moment of death mm-hmm. and how God can intervene. But then we have what happens when we die. When we die, we face judgment. And I, let me ask just a, an honest question. You only have a couple minutes to answer this one, okay, okay. before we're going to hit our break. And that would be, do you think a lot or do you think ever about um, facing the Lord in judgment? Yes, I do. Do you really? more, more, more and more lately. Yeah? Why and, is that? Um, I don't know. I think um, partly because maybe I've been preaching uh, on and off and, and also maybe facing my own mortality, like, you know, I won't tell the listeners you know, what like, my age about, is. But I'm, I'm about 33% older than you. Okay, so <laughs> thank you for that. That's very encouraging. So, I, let me Put in perspective, I'm in my mid-20s, right? No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Since I paused at 39, right? <laughs> I had a very depressing thing happen. Okay, I think I, did I tell you this? I had my birthday, and, and people say, oh, happy birthday. I said, you can't be older than 45. And I'm like... That is so depressing, <laughs> right? Like, it used to be 39. They're, they're trying to be so like, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's it called? Saying, oh, you look so young for your age. <laughs> yeah. But what they identified as young was 45. And then someone else used 49. Oh, oh you, you must be 49, right? Ha, ha, ha. And I'm like, how old do I look? <laughs> this is terrible. But the reality is how old that I am. Uh. Father Lewis, it goes way faster than you imagine. I know. It's just like all of a sudden you're like, what happened? How did I get to 57? Yeah. Hey, there it is. Everyone knows now. (laughs) I kind of live transparently here. So, um, no, but I want to know that you said that you're feeling like this sense, like this awareness that you're getting older. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's multiple reasons why I've been thinking about it more, but I have. and, And at first it terrifies me because, and then, but then that terror leads me to an examine. And so every night prayer, hopefully I'm doing this, every Compline, and then I get to confession as quick as I can when I recognize that something has come up in my examine. Okay, so when you said it terrifies you, I want to unpack that because 
um, there's there's like the terrifying sense around, oh my goodness, I didn't do what God asked me to do, versus the terrifying reality that I don't want to face the Lord and not be ready for judgment. So I want to understand what you meant by, gosh, this terrifies me and it gets me to take action. Because I think this is really relevant, folks, for us living well as disciples of Jesus. Back in a minute. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Curran. I'm with Father Lewis, who is terrified. So <laughs> I'm terrified. You said everyone. it. Hey, I'm just <laughs> quoting it back to you. So, but you're terrified, full of faith, hope, and love yes. as you approach the moment of death. But um, no, there was this sense of the awareness that, hey, I'm getting older, and I need to be ready to face the Lord in judgment. And and I I'm not going to pick on you for using that word, but um, what did you mean by that? By terrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you don't even have to use that word again, but just that yeah. idea that like, oh my goodness, it, this is like something that makes me stop, pause, and take action. Yeah. I think what, um, I think the first thing that terrifies me about it, and, and maybe the, the, the biggest thing, the main thing is that like, this is it. There's, there's no more chances. There's no more, please, Lord. There's no more confession. There's no more appealing to Mother Mary. Now and at the hour of our death is how we pray the Hail Mary. Well, death has happened, so that's past now. There's nothing left. Now comes the the judgment, and and Jesus is the the first circuit court of appeals, but he's the supreme court. Like he is it. I mean, and in that moment, like that's so funny. Yeah. Oh, that's so I mean, funny. It's, there is uh, no there is no appeal process here. Yeah, there's right? no appeal. I mean, wow. Jesus, this is it, and uh, and uh, and and I've got nothing left. I've got no merits. I've got no no more second chances. And so what? So then, like, I've got to just fling myself at the mercy of the court, <laughs> and um, and uh, and 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 the judgment's coming anyway. So that, and and, and so what? Pro- why that prompts me to action is that well, that's then. This is now. I I still got a chance now. And I guess I connect that too with like, and maybe we, you know, I can we can uh, expand upon this idea uh, when, later on in the program, but. But uh, there's the great. If we ever get to the outline. If we get to the outline, you're, you're kind of holding the outline and you're trembling a little bit. I know. It's for like, fear that we're not uh, going to even. Get I to miss the you. First, I'll see you soon. To the first quote. <laughs> but uh, Michelangelo's got the famous uh, painting that's the entire altar wall of the Sistine Chapel. It's called the Last Judgment, and um, and there's many things that could be said about that. Many figures that you could look at. And two of them always strike me. One is there's one figure in the whole, and there's like 400 figures in this one piece of art. And only one of them is looking at the viewer. And I think he is known as the sinner. Do you know which character I'm talking about? He is wrapped about his legs by Satan. He is wrapped and coiled about his body by a serpent that symbolizes the world. And then another guy is like gnawing on his shoulder. So the three sins that were trapped, you know, the sins of the world, the sins of the flesh, and the sins of, in, the, in, the, in the power of Satan. And he's looking with his hands clasped on his face and one eye is all you can see. And the look of sheer terror, like awareness, a terror of awareness, like this is it. And I might be dragged down or God might pull me up. So, wait a minute, so he's also being pulled up. Well, he's somewhere in the middle. That's the interesting okay. thing. He's somewhere in the middle of this whole space. So he's not down where hell is, and he's not up with Christ and the saints. He is standing apart or floating apart, but Satan's trying to pull him down, but he's not down with the others yet. He's somewhere in space in the midst okay. of angels. Isn't there, is there one? And I don't, I don't, like, I, I have a vague memory of that, not specific. Um, so you know this better than I do. But isn't there a figure that, like, I know that there are some souls that like angels are pulling them up. Yeah, there's like a cosmic battle going on. So okay. some angels are pulling some up, and then demons are pulling some down. And, though and are there this... any? Is there are there any that are being pulled and uh, you know at simultaneously? 
Do you know that? I, I don't know right off the top of okay. my head, actually. That's but, interesting. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so that, I mean, the, the, you'd have to see it. It's hard to describe. I mean, just, I mean, Michelangelo poured every, whatever agony looks like on the human face, that is in this guy's face. The agony and the terror of the unknown or what's going to happen or something. So that strikes me. And the other one is, and this might be even, it's not as, um, as, uh, um, as a gra- I, I guess as graphic or shocking as that, but it's terrifying in its implication, and that is where Jesus is at the high center part of the painting. He's um, he's in his glory. He's surrounded by glorious light. He's muscular. He's large and in charge. He is here to finish up with business, and he is looking down at what's going on. He does not look happy, and seated to his right, to the viewer's left, but to his right and behind him is his mother, but Jesus's right arm is up. In Italian, you know, there's like this phrase, basta, enough. And he's like saying to Mary, your job is done now. You have no more say. It's now my turn. And he's saying to her, enough. And she's like looking away, unlike sorrow, like, I've tried to help you people. Why wouldn't you let me help you? And Jesus is now taking it over. And that terrifies me too. Like, I can't even hope on Mother Mary's intercession in the moment of judgment because that's all done now. I've, I've reached death. And she prayed for me at the hour of my death. Now, did I respond in a way that will prepare me for this final judgment? So anyway, for you viewers at home, check it out and uh, prepare for a sleepless night. (laughs) (laughs) So what you were sharing, Father Lewis, reminded me of St. Alphonsus de Liguori. So there you go. You're in good company. The most (laughs) prolific writer in the history of the Catholic Church. But his book I've mentioned, um, Preparation for Death, he has a number of meditations on this is, you know, once you die and you face judgment, it, it is game over. You better be ready. And, and I mean, it is a keep you, keep you up at night book. So if, if uh, folks, if you haven't read it, read it during the day. <laughs> read it in the church Saturday afternoon before you go to confession. It'll help. It'll help <laughs> get you ready to realize. And, and I think this is the theme. There's something at stake. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. There's not something at stake. There's everything at stake. Right. right. There's your eternity at stake. And it's just, for me, mind-boggling that we, like, we're, it's like we're sleepwalking. We're sleep, sleepwalking through life, thinking about my retirement plan. We're thinking about the basketball game happening tomorrow and did my son make the team. Thinking about uh, this test and my dumb neighbors and the, you know, what's going to happen with the economy and my job, right? Are, are these things like are they um are they demonic? No. Are they do they have some importance? Yes. Are they supremely important that they should dominate my time and crowd out thoughts about the fact that this is the day that I could face the Lord in death? They better not mm-hmm. or they're doing uh, they're doing the devil's work cuz they're kind of distracting me from what is really the most at stake in my life. And it's like, boy, if we only lived like that, if we only lived like that, I, um, cause I asked the question about the, the terrifying character of, of life, uh, of, of approaching death as having two potential dimensions. And you highlighted the one, I'm going to ask you about the other one. So the one is, I want to be ready to meet my maker. I want to be ready to meet my judge. I want to be ready to meet the Lord in judgment. But the other is, this may be the end of the time that I have to do what St. Paul said, right? Philippians 1.21, for me, life means Christ, death is gain. Mm -hmm. However, if I go on living, it means productive toil. Mm -hmm. And for me, 
I put, I think, honestly, more of my attention on I want to be all in in the time that I have. I don't want to live a life half-lived. I don't want to just like get through today just thinking, yeah, I said my prayers, and then I comfortably watched a movie eating popcorn. Yeah, I want to be fully all given over to God and his purposes for my life. And so that terrifies me. Yeah, It's like, I'm so tired of living half measures. So does that, does that ever come up, that St. Paul sense of life means Christ, death is gain, and if I go on living, it means productive toil? Yeah. Well, not as St. Paul says it, but there's, um, as a priest, there's, a, there's a, a, a kind of an aspect of the prayer and the liturgy hours that speaks to me every time we come up. And it's in a section of the liturgy hours, the bravery called the common of pastors. So whenever we have like St. Alphonsus Liguori, some of the prayers come from these set of prayers that are common to any pastor, any bishop or priest of the church. And um, and then after the reading, I think it is, for the morning prayer, there's the phrase that goes back and forth, um, that uh, he loved his brethren and ever prayed for them, and then he spent himself in their service. And that idea of spending myself in the service of those entrusted to my care, that that is uh, that fills me with an, an energy to want, to want to keep doing more. There's something more to give. And then coupled with that, I think it's the... I think it's in um, in the Office of Readings for St. Bade the Venerable. Um, He's talking about even in the hour of his death, he is dying. His body is failing. He's surrounded by his brethren, and he's he's parceling out the little treasures that he has. He has like a box of salt that he gives to somebody, and and be sure to give this money to the poor, whatever it is. He lists like four or five things, and like, really? Like, he's dying, and he's concerned about who gets his salt, but... What that speaks to is he is so filled with charity and his desire to be of continue to be of service even as he's dying, he can't do anything else but he can give away what little treasures he has to those of his brethren that he feels might need them. So he's still he's still got the heart of the good shepherd. He's still got the um, you know the the heart and the soul bursting with a, with a, a desire for charitable action. And so as he's fading, he's still trying to to be of service. He's still trying to do the toil. Of the disciple. So I, uh, I remember you shared and you lived um, something um, very powerful. And it was around um, the COVID. When COVID happened and our churches shut down, um, you did something with your office. And yeah. you did it on purpose. And I don't want to embarrass you, but I was really moved by that. And, um, and for me, that was an example of spending yourself for us. And what, did you, what was it that you did? What am I talking about? Well, I, I removed my office from the office and set up a little desk station inside the church and had adoration going on on the live stream so someone can pray with the Lord, at least virtually, and, and I was there with the Lord like all hours of the day. Like I, There's nothing else I can do, but I can communicate and do things here, and the Lord is here with me, hopefully blessing the work I'm doing. Is that what you're referring yeah. to? Yeah. Well, that was very touching to me because we didn't have access to the church, and so it was like, I'm going to make the Lord accessible to you. Even if it's like, I'll do what I can do. And what I can do is um, have the Lord exposed. But if the Lord's going to be exposed, he needs to have an adorer. So, well, I guess I can do it for an hour, you know, and then just shut her down. And then you guys can watch the video, right? Right. You didn't do that. You're like, I'm going to be there, not for my own sake. I'm going to be there for the sake of my people because my people can't access the Lord. 
I'm going to make him accessible to the extent that I can. And that was a sacrificial, very generous action. And I really, I was very moved by that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. It was a blessing for me. That's for sure. Well, but you know, that's, see, this is the thing. It's like people talk about, uh, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Right. Um, and that uh, you talk to people who are generous in sacrificially giving. And what you'll often discover is I received more than I ever gave, but that wasn't why I gave. Right? It wasn't about me thinking, what strategy can I employ to receive as much as possible? Oh, I get it. Let me just be very generous in giving. Mm-hmm. Right? It's sort of that some twisted forms of prosperity gospel, which right. is, you want to be blessed? Give a lot. You want to be blessed more? Give even more. Oh, great. Now I have a motive for giving even more. It'll be a way for me to get more. Mm-hmm. That's called mercenary love. <laughs> it was a sin in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Mercenary love. It's the love of those who... Uh, are acting in order for the reward that they get, yeah. mercenaries. And that's a, boy, what a terrible sin. Yeah. But, boy, very tempting, very tempting. It's me like, Lord, give me the lottery winning t- winning lottery ticket because I will be so generous with it, yeah. way more than other people. <laughs> so, um, so just that idea that says be generous in giving, and you do get blessed, but that's not why you do it. And And the blessing still comes with, a cross, a suffering, a, a true emptying, a true giving of oneself. So I think that um, that the way in which we are like easily um, distracted from these really important things, living well and dying well and being prepared for judgment. That's what we're talking about in this final week of the liturgical year, um, that these are like the most important, most fundamental things that have the biggest impacts. And boy, what a sadness that we don't pay more attention to them. Mm-hmm. And, and we do so because people are afraid of talking about it. They don't know how to deal with it. They, they, like, What kind of insight do they have? Well, that's why we're talking about it today on the program. We're talking about it today so that you, dear beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, you wonderful Catholic Christian disciples of Jesus, you can approach life with your eyes wide open. Live well, live generously, live sacrificially now. Bear fruit for the time that, that, that remains so that you'll also, guess what, have an eye towards what happens when you die. And you'll die as a great act of faith, open love, and you'll meet the Lord in judgment. Okay, uh, question. Uh-oh. So you referenced the um, Sistine Chapel, the behind the altar, the famous Last Judgment scene in Jesus. He's coming back, right? The second coming of Christ, which then says, game over. Okay, I think there are a lot of folks who think that Jesus' return is going to be like carried live on CNN He's returned to Jerusalem, and we'll all have a chance to kind of go tune in to the live stream because Christ has come again. Mm-hmm. Is that what the second coming is like, Father? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that CNN would broadcast that, actually. I mean, <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, I mean, it's it, it's hard to imagine. And now we we recognize that the world is round. So if Jesus were to appear right outside your 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 office window here, you know, how can the people in Russia see that you know and uh so i mean just, I, I, my mind gets confused by the by the physics of that i suppose but but the idea is that when when jesus comes again like everyone in that moment like the final judgment of everything it's not going to happen in phases like oh it's happening in russia 
you know, it's not like Santa Claus, like going east to west, you know, a time zone. <laughs> hey, I got a couple hours to get right with God because he's uh, over in Russia and he's making his way over. It all happens at the same time. And, and how that happens, that's the mystery. But, but uh, yeah, so CNN is broadcasting it. You know, you don't need that because you can look out your window and it's happening there too. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so I, when I try to describe it, I'll say it's like, okay, you have to imagine this, right? Okay, you see the sky? The sky is going to be rent apart. It's going to be completely ripped open. The fabric of creation is ripped open. So it's like a, a sheet of paper. Hmm. That round world, actually the entire universe, is just going to be rent open. And he is absolutely, completely unmissable. Because all of a sudden we realize that we are less than a grain of sand before the glorified Lord Jesus that Lord that we have the opportunity to adore in the Blessed Sacrament is going to rip open the entire fabric of the universe and it is, he is back. Mm -hmm. He is here. He is coming as judge and as Lord. Back in a minute with more Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. So here we are, we're approaching the, the theme of judgment. We haven't even <laughs> talked about it yet, Father. We've got at least we've gotten to the second coming. We've said the word judgment a couple of times. So that's a good yeah. start. <laughs> Praise be to God. So talking about judgment here, um, we've we've come upon this idea that the last judgment happens at the end of the world, and this is literally game over for everybody, for everything. There's no more, you know, no more game. There's no more game to be played, and it happens instantaneously. Um, let's go back to what most of us, uh, maybe all of us are going to experience is not the general judgment as the place of our own judgment at the moment of our death. Like there's a chance, I guess, that we'd be alive when Christ returns. I'm much more focused on the idea that death is going to happen in my life, not by him coming back to us, but by my going to him. Yeah. Right. So don't worry about the end of the world. Worry about the end of your world, yeah. which could happen at any moment, any day. So with that in mind, um, we come before Jesus. Okay, I'm going to give you one of the ways that judgment has been described. Okay. And then you give me your reaction to it. Okay. And it's as theologians and saints have pondered the experience of the last judgment, how do we actually get judged? And we typically think of it as you open the book and then here's the list of sins that you have. And hopefully there's no mortal sins, but there are venial sins. And then, okay, you get assigned. Here's what happens. But what is judgment? And judgment is the distance that exists between the person that Christ intended you to become and the person you actually became. So judgment is the gap that exists between here, the idea that I've had in my mind for you, your identity and your mission, the purpose for which I created you and for which you were to live, I'm going to put that on display in front of you. And that will be the measure against the life that you actually showed up as. How does that feel? Is that from one of the saints you said? Yeah. That's, I never thought of that. I would not have thought of that at all, but I think I like that very much. It, it's a... Uh, you know, uh, it's in the scriptures, you know, we're striving to be the new man, we're striving, you know, and Jesus himself, you know, they didn't even recognize him when he came back because he is in the fullness of his glory and his and His perfection, and, and uh, please God, that's what will happen to each of us, that we may not even recognize ourselves, so, 
but every little you know sin that we do and things you know takes away from from that uh, perfect portrait that we uh, that we that should be ours and that's an interesting way of thinking about the the judgment like i can see how much i have fallen short of what you willed for me oh god and this is isn't a great that vision. scary right but yeah. just to stop and say it, it's like and you know where this shows up for instance is in ecclesiam suam paul the sixth first encyclical and he says that renewal in the church happens by first of all discovering who the church is ideally in the mind of christ and then when we discover who we are in the mind of Christ, then we see who we actually are, and then what do we do? We follow a path of um, reformation. Okay. Um, there's that path of reform and renewal that happens. Well, how do we know how to reform and renew our lives? Well, we do based on this is where we're at, but this is where we ought to be. And so it's that living in that tension between is and ought, mm -hmm. between the real and the ideal, that makes us say, move! You know, strip down, be purified, grow, expand. It's it's moving from it's it's Exodus, right? Yeah. It's moving from slavery to the promised land, and we got to go through the purification and the formation, right? So it's all these same themes, but now it's applied to our own lives. And just say, folks, stop and think about it. Christ planted you here in this moment in history for a purpose. He intended you to become someone and do something. He has a purpose for your life, a plan, and one day that's going to measure your life. Ouch. Yeah. Wow. I, I, that is super motivating for me. Yeah, me too. I, you know, I'd hate to think, well, I, I was held back from the perfection ought to be because I, uh, I chose to spend my, you know, Sunday afternoons after last mass, like lounging and watching, you know, Simpsons for the umpteenth time or something like that when I could still be doing the good that God has entrusted to me to do, you know, whatever it is. It's, yeah. um, I got to tell you from my life, cause I can end up confessing this like almost every time is I confess wasted time. And uh, for me, when I say wasted time, I mean, I, I don't mean that God never wants me to relax. Like, it's wrong to sit down and have popcorn and watch a movie at the end of my day, right? But if that's all I do, then maybe I'm out of balance. And, and so that's where, like, that idea of leisure, like, leisure is authentically something. But... When I look at the lives of saints and I contrast it with the typical lifestyle that I am tempted to fall into and do fall into, I'm like, man, that is a discrepancy. Mm -hmm. That I mean, I read the life of St. Vincent Ferrer. I read the life of um, St. Uh, Francis of Paolo. And, and I'm like, I am such a wimp. <laughs> I am such a wimp. These The, the, the total, like... They were not eating popcorn and watching movies, no. right? St. Seraphim of Sorrow, all these great saints, uh, part of that idea is that they become the measure for us, mm -hmm. right? That's why they're canonized. They become a standard for us to measure our lives against. And that's a kind of a frightening thing. Yeah. But it can be an inspiring thing if we if we let it, if we choose to let it. Like, um, like I, you know, I, I guess what has come to my mind is that if I think about the measure of my sainthood or falling short of that in terms of that image, then it, it'll... I, I can feel it pulling me out of the temptation to sloth, like get up and move, get up and like, you know, if nothing else, get up and pray. Don't just lounge on the couch watching the Simpsons for the teen time, but remove yourself to the chapel and spend that leisure time in prayer and, um, and getting closer to the saints. But, but if we find that we have fallen short, you know, there's great hope. I remember, you know, St. Teresa of Avila, like the first 30, 40 years of her life was that. <laughs> she was like, and then Donna, like, look around, like, what am I doing? With, even in religious life, what am I doing? We're just living like a slightly different variation of the comfortable nobility. 
and uh, and that was not enough for her, and she woke up to that, and and now the Carmelite Order had been reformed under her leadership, right? So, um, so there's hope for us yet, Tom. <laughs> yeah, amen. And and but you said something very beautiful. There's something comforting to say. Read the life of Saint Teresa of Avila, and realize that even a woman who was living a cloistered religious life could measure herself and be found wanting by that encounter with Christ. Christ is like, I've got an ideal for you that is way more than you imagined. And so I think I think that's part of it is that focusing on the concept of judgment through that lens of saying, you know what, it's not just like a suggestion that Jesus has for your life. And it's not just that, oh, you can choose to be anything you want to be with your life. Rather than discerning, why did God make you? What does God have for you? What does God want from you? What does God, what has God put into your hands as a stewardship that can impact the whole body of Christ? And say, discover that and then run the race to let that happen. I mean, that's what I want. That's what I want. So uh, I'm going to use a, a movie metaphor. All good. It's a rated R movie. Uh oh! Don't scandalize so, anybody now. <laughs> I don't know. It, I don't know why it's rated R. Um, it's the Matrix. Do you realize the mo- the first Matrix was rated R? Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Did you do, is it is it like all the? Like, I think the technical reason is violence. But even then, violence? I mean, yeah. there's a lot of gun violence. But I don't recall there being like violence. What they mean, like blood and gore. Yeah, yeah I, it surprised me to too today. when it came out as rated R. Yeah. Yeah, but um, there's a scene in it where he goes and sees the Oracle, mm-hmm. and. The uh, Oracle, you know, is basically going to give him insight into his mission. Who are you and what are you about, right? What's your identity and what's your purpose? And, um, and, and she says, but you already know the answer. And he's like, I'm not the one. And, and he just kind of laughs. And, and do you remember her answer to her, him? He was she, like, she says something like, sorry, kid. Sorry, kid. You, and, you got it in you, but it looks like you're looking for something. And he's, what are you waiting for? Yeah. Right? Yeah. What are you waiting for? You know, and you got the gift, but you're looking for something. What are you waiting for? Mm-hmm. And that line, Carrie and I use with each other. Like we use it to each other. It's like, um, you got the gift. What are you waiting for? Like you, you got the gift. And, and by that, it's like, we've been entrusted with so many blessings, whether it's the gift of our faith or just the gift of material blessings. And it's like, Carrie says to me at least twice a week, we have to get some family from the border into our house. There are all these orphans. There are all these families that sent their kids across and they've got, they're in cages. And it's like, can we get them? Can we, how many of these kids can we take in? Or these Afghan refugees. So she's been like looking around, like contacting websites and looking around and trying to find organizations that have relationships with these orphans or with these uh, families that are that are re- like in refugees and it's like how do we make room for them what do we do and it, and it and it's based on that spirit of like we got the gift what are we waiting for it's mm-hmm. like you don't want to die with grain bins right right so i don't know what do you think of that father well i, I see we're coming up on our next break but really quick another movie image is the end of schindler's list if anyone's have seen that and Everyone else, you know, the Nazis have, have gone away. He's there with all the Jews that he saved in his factory. 
and and they're all like you know you know loving him and and cheering kind of for him and all this and 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 rejoicing that they've been saved. What's he doing? He's agonizing over what more he could have done to save more. I could have sold this factory a hundred more. I could have sold this car ten more right there. And he looks at a gold Nazi lapel pin on his suit. This would have saved one more Jew if he had sold it and bribed someone with it. It's a powerful. It's like my favorite scene because he says, "I didn't do enough." And, and Itzhak Stern, his accountant's response was, you did so much. That is a powerful line. We'll come back and pick up on that line in a minute on Sound Insight. Welcome back to Sound Insight. This is Tom Carnum with Father Jeff Lewis, and we're talking about judgment. And uh, even though we haven't got there yet. I know. What a, what a long intro. Let's keep delaying judgment as much as we I can. I know. Right? Isn't that true? We kind of <laughs> avoid judgment. Uh, but... Uh, it's funny, I keep using these imageries of uh, eating popcorn and watching movies. And I know how much you love movies, and me too. That's the problem for me, not for you. It's the popcorn <laughs> is the problem. But um, that end of the Schindler's List story where he says, I did so much. No, I, I didn't do enough. And Itzhak Stern says, you did so much. Yeah. And I think that that is a beautiful dynamic in the life of a soul, of a great soul. Because I think when we are overly focused on our own comfort, what we'll say is, comparatively, I did so much. Hmm. And if we say that, the Lord will say to us, you didn't do enough. But if we come before the Lord in humility and say, I didn't do enough, then the Lord will say, you did so much. Right. I, I think that, boy, that is really worth that, just that dynamic. It's sort of the, um, the publican and the uh, tax collector and the, you know, the publican and the, uh, the, the, the Pharisee. It's the Pharisee, yeah. right? What, how, you, 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 you bring the, what did I, what am I saying there? You <laughs> well, the, say it. The, the Pharisee is in that story, you know, the Pharisee is, he says this prayer to himself, Jesus says. He said this prayer to himself, Lord, I thank you for all that, all, you know. I did so I, much. I, I did so much. I, I gave all these ties and everything. I'm not even like this filthy, you know, tax collector over here. And what does a tax collector say? And, you know, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's, he's saying to the Lord, I didn't do enough. I didn't do anything, is what he says. And what does Jesus say? I tell you that the latter went home justified, not the former. Yeah, and that, you know, unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and Pharisees. So you think you did a lot? I did so much. No, you know what? You didn't do enough. Is exactly what he says to mm-hmm. the Pharisee. Or to, as Jesus puts it another way, the last shall be uh, first shall be last, and last shall be first. If we put ourselves forward and brag about ourselves, Jesus is going to be like, oh, yeah, I got to knock you down quite a few pegs. Yeah. So I um I th- I don't know if we talked about this last week or the week before, but I I have grown in my like sense of urgency that. The level of stewardship and generosity in stewardship that is being asked of fervent people of faith, uh, uh, active Catholics, is greater than it's ever been. Not that the call wasn't there, but the recognition that you just can't comfortably enjoy your own life in in your beautiful home with your padded accounts that no, no, all of those things now need to be made available for others. Your time, your treasure, and your talent need to be available to others in a degree that is more than has ever been expected of you, and, and it's for the sake of salvation of souls. Yeah. 
That's my sense. I don't know. Do you, do you agree with that? I, th- I think so. And, you know, and coupled with that, you know, that sounds, you know, oh, gosh, you know, that's there's we're up against so much. That's a high, tall order. That's true. But how many times have I heard it said in the last couple of years that now is the best time to be alive because it's going to be so easy to be to, to work toward becoming saints ourselves because the opportunities are there in, in abundance. We're going to have a chance to boldly witness to the faith. We're going to, you know, we got poverty everywhere. We got all kinds of opportunities to give to the poor, to, to feed the hungry and shelter the homeless and in the works of mercy. And um, so much is expected of us. And now the opportunities are there to, to put that expectation to work because we're surrounded by it. So um, yes, it sounds like a tall order and it is. And I think you're right. The urgency is there. But for me, part of the urgency is because the opportunities are there and the urgency is don't waste this opportunity. If we were living in like a Christendom world, the opportunities aren't maybe aren't as there as much. So the urgency isn't there. We've got to we've got to find other ways to strive for sainthood. But the striving for sainthood is a, it's right in our face. You know, here, here's how you be a saint do this. And I'm showing you. And uh, that's what the Lord is saying to us. And so the urgency is to not to not let him down, right? To not uh, waste that chance. Uh, amen, Father Lewis. Amen. It's like, um, it's, uh, you know, this idea that uh, uh, it's not, when I think about this call to be a disciple, like it's it's the way to become a saint, but it's not comfortable. It's like the opposite, right? right? Jesus says, you want to be my disciple? Okay, first of all, pick up your cross. Every day, abandon your life, and follow me. For what good is it to win the whole world and lose your soul? What what does a man profit, right? Mm-hmm. Who gets all of the goods of this earth, but then loses his soul, right. right? What can a man exchange for his life? And and then if you're ashamed of me and my gospel, like okay, up 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 the game, right? Up what's at stake here? Then my father, I'll be ashamed of you and, and my father mm-hmm. when I come back with my kingdom, right? It's that whole judgment. That's that's like the basics. Mm-hmm. The basics are. You're going to follow Jesus, expect a cross. Yeah. You're going to follow Jesus, expect persecution. You're going to follow Jesus, expect that there's going to be, you're going to have to put yourself out on the line and say, I'm with Jesus or I'm not. Mm-hmm. And we have been able to comfortably avoid that, just comfortably avoid that. Um, and it's becoming more difficult to do that today. Yeah. 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 It is more, you know, it's all, I would say even impossible without making oneself look like just a, just a, an irrational fool uh, by saying things, you know, uh, at the risk of getting overtly political, I suppose. But it, it, politicians, Catholic politicians used to be able to say, well, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I, I can't force my thing on others. And, you know, we can talk about that. But you can't you can't say that anymore because we, we recognize the truth. You know, you, you just can't say that. If you try saying that, then you do sound like a fool. So now the line is drawn in the sand. And, and and not only are people saying, uh, you know, I'm Catholic, and and at the same time, not only is do I disagree with the church's stance on this issue, but but it's actually it's it's a clarion call for for freedom and so on. This is this is a good, you know, we're calling evil good, and so uh, you know now we're just sounding even more ridiculous. But like the fact that some sound really like that doesn't sound right. You're on apparently the other side of what the line is. I'm gonna stay here now. It's I think it's impossible to try to just not choose the side and be clever about it, right. and and say I can do this and be a good Catholic, and I'm going to come forward and receive Holy Communion. Yeah, 
And it's like, this was kind of a, this is kind of a big deal, right? There was a Eucharistic coherence and the yeah. bishops are gathering together and they're talking about all this stuff and they released a document. And one of the, um, one of the um, points of controversy was, um, do you state overtly that if you are a Catholic politician and you are um, what's this? A notorious public center is what? What's the phrase used by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith? I can't um, remember. So it was, this yeah. was in, this was what Cardinal Ratzinger was the CDF, and and the question came: um, Should Catholic politicians who are um, supporting um, abortion should they come forward and receive Holy Communion? And the quote back was referencing a canon. I think it's nine fifteen. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. And the answer was no. Yep. You should not come forward and receive Holy Communion if you are notoriously promoting baby slaughter. The innocent slaughter, the slaughter of the innocent babies in the wombs of their mothers. You cannot be voting for that, advocating for that, promoting that, and come forward and receive Holy Communion. That's a scandal. That's do not do that. And it's going to damage your soul. Mm -hmm. But that did not play that way out when it got received and communicated to the bishops in the United States. And so now they just basically left it up to individual bishops to say it. And it's like, is there a clear voice? Is that a clear voice? You know, is that a clear voice? And the answer is no, sadly it's not. Well, some, some individual bishops are okay. If this is the way that uh, we're going to operate, then they have been a clear voice. I remember when Cardinal Burke, when he was uh, Archbishop of St. Louis, he he was very clear. I think it was uh, probably in 2004, I think, uh, Catholic politicians... Well, that was the reason why this whole uh, question of clarification came up. Yeah, that's right. It was because he denied... Mm -hmm. uh, Was it Kerry? John Kerry. John Kerry was going to come to his state for... To campaign or To campaign. And he said, yeah, you can come, just don't come forward for communion. Yeah. And... um, Anyway, so I, I know there's individual bishops that have done that, and to to greater or lesser degree of of making it known or having someone else making it known. I know that I know that Bishop Daly has. He has not come out and say, you know, if if if, uh, if national politician so and so comes to Spokane, first of all, he wouldn't do that because why would they come to Spokane? You know, right. and if they did, if the news came out that they were coming to Spokane, I imagine he would say something, but. Some local public figures that have you know claimed the name of Christian, a Catholic Christian, and taken the side that's against Catholic teaching. I can't remember. There's a couple of different issues. He has come out and said statements, and it's provoked a reaction in the local newspaper. But but that has remained at the local level. So I hate to like kind of you know cast a broadcast over all the bishops saying, "Come on now, who knows?" But that they're being very clear in their own dioceses. But at the same time, like you know, here's the USCCB. We got this major issue going on here. We have a president that's Catholic and a speaker of the house that's self-identifying Catholic. Yeah, yeah. And they are some of the most notorious promoters yeah. of abortion. And as a as a body of bishops, you know, should that at least warrant some kind of statement? And uh, they chose not to do that. But I don't know all the ins and outs. I'm not one of them. So one of the bishops, I mean. Thanks be to God for that. So. Yeah. Well, it, so did we say it's easy? No. No, it's not easy. Yeah. But at some at what point at what point do bishops stand up and say this is an evil this is a horror this is tragic and as a body we must unite and say no yeah so again that's we're not bishops we don't have the the stewardship that they have yeah. but like the bishops one day we'll have to give an account yep i'm gonna have to give an account you'll have to give an account on the stewardship that is ours on the role that is ours on the part that is ours and so will bishops god bless them pray for them pray for priests 
Pray for Father Lewis. <laughs> please. And please pray for me yes. as well as we all strive to, we do, honestly, strive to live out the stewardship that's ours. And I hope that this program has helped you with that as well. For one day we will be judged. All right, God bless you guys. Join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight.